I'm John Walker. I'm John Ulis. And you're listening to Nine Secret Eps, a podcast about the music of They Might Be Giants. But this isn't one of the secret eps. This is this is a bonus app. You get an extra app every few apps. Who knew? But once you get through three apps, I guess, you you get a bonus. What do you think of that? I think now that you've said it, we have to stick to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to stick to it. I think there's another bonus app coming sooner than that, but I don't mean to uh, spoil the future for everybody. Can't wait for my favorite one. <laughs> I'm not going to say they're great. I'm not going to say they ain't. Well, you know what? I am going to say this one's great because we have a great guest, and that is Paul Myers. Paul is the author of the book One Dumb Guy about the kids in the hall, which I read and loved. He's also the host of the Record Store Day podcast, which returns on June 8th. All you have to do is look at the feed for that show to see the kind of great guests he routinely gets because people like to talk to Paul. Um, he's also a musician in his own right, making music in the 90s with the group The Gravelberries and more recently uh, releasing ambient instrumental work under the name Flam as well as being part of a more traditional combo called The Paul and John. And you can find all that stuff on Bandcamp. Uh, so so do that. He's also a really good photographer. You know, he, he does it all, this Paul. It's sickening. But I'm glad we got him on the show because following him on Twitter, I noticed that he makes the occasional They Might Be Giants reference, and it struck me, okay, maybe this thoughtful guy who likes to talk about music uh, would like to talk about They Might Be Giants. And uh, yes, it turned out to be a, a, a good thought. Yeah, well, I agree, first of all. Very funny Twitter account, and uh, he does mention TMBG quite a bit. And I, yeah, I love this conversation. He had so much to say about songs from their entire career. You could tell he's a uh, real fan. I think everyone's going to enjoy this one quite a bit. So uh, without any further ado, here is the bonus ep, the official Nine Secret Eps conversation. This is sort of like the Barbara Walters interview or the, you know, people are going to talk about this in the future the way they talk about being on Mark Maron. Have you been on a bonus ep? Um, this is the bonus ep interview with Paul Myers. Paul Myers. Tilting at tilting things. Let's see what the daylight brings. Let's see what the daylight brings. Uh, our next guests were listed in the 1988 Esquire magazine Register of Notable Americans. Their new album is called The Lincoln. Ladies and gentlemen, making their network television debut, please welcome. They might be giants. One of the first inklings I ever had was they'll need a crane where, um, in the middle of that song, we're going to talk about the whole thing, I suppose. But I remember years ago, just years ago, hearing uh, that part where he goes, don't call me at work again. The boss still hates me. And like, baby, wait, I didn't mean to say nightmare. That whole thing, it's like out of the blue. And it's the most serious discussion in the world. And also, they'll need a crane is funny. It's a funny thing to say, like 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 two two characters in a comedy sketch saying, oh, I guess they'll, they'll need a crane to take that thing down. But he's talking about dismantling a life. And to me, the fact that they didn't have to explain themselves, uh, they just did it and you got it and you're the smart one for knowing or whatever, that you felt closer to them because of that. Like the, the sort of, um, 
it's escapism in, in many ways because they're like, you know, the whole original cell of They Might Be Giants is two nerdy guys who make stuff in their house, you know, in their, you know, in Brooklyn somewhere. But when you listen to it, you go, oh, wait a minute, they're two, they're smart guys. And they're also, there's heart in this. And the heart comes from that kind of acknowledgement of mortality, uh, political, uh, you know, wrongness and uh, things that they're, they're addressing the world. And they're as, as subversive as any punk band. But I, I always felt that they, they were my band for that reason, you know? <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's interesting that you frame it that way because I almost invariably, it's an accident. Even thinking about conversations for this show, and I think John, uh, you and I talked a little bit about this, this, that you almost frame conversations about They Might Be Giants in a defensive way. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you want to, because you want to make that case that these guys are serious, that these guys are not maybe what people think they are from, from maybe the stuff that they're most known for. So it's almost like they trip over their own like inclinations. I've always said about myself that I want to be understood, but then I make no effort to be understandable to people. So it's like I create, and I almost think a band like They Might Be Giants that obviously wants to be taken seriously, they also put all this crazy stuff into their music that might scare off, as you said, maybe a superficial music fan who kind of wants to feel cool. Yeah. I think you just said it. You just said it better than I did. But yeah. And just just on another on a, just on another level, I remember sort of thinking that, you know, when you mentioned comedy, I mean, you know, there's a fine line between the kids in the hall singing These Are the Daves I Know, uh, if you know oh, it. Of course I do. I've read the damn book. <laughs> and, and yeah, and and that 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 could be a They Might Be Giants song. Yeah. Hi. I'm Bruce McCullough. I'd like to tell you about the Daves I know. <laughs> These are the days I know, I know. These are the days I know. David Hoffner, he works in my dad's store. He's worked for 12 years, he'll probably work here for more. These are the days I know, I know. These are the days I know. And also in the subject matter of, of their songs, like um, of their sketches, I, they, they have the same kind of thing about, it's almost like a, adulting, you know, like they're kids who hate establishment, but then they kind of have to recognize that they're becoming the establishment. I mean, certainly as the Johns increased their career length, they grew up and started doing, you know, things that were about being adults, you know, and, you know, including like older and songs like that. <laughs> like, you know, they're literally addressing it or the music they did for that um, that uh, documentary series about the hospital where it's, you know, am I awake, you know, like, and you're like, this is some serious stuff, but the, these these are my friends. These are my They Might Be Giants guys who I, you know, I didn't go to college with them, but uh, in quotes, but I kind of feel like they, they, we all grew up together, you know? Right. And in fact, these qualities are things that drew us to the band. I mean, wouldn't you say that, John, when you were a kid getting into them, that the fact that they were, they didn't keep humor out of their music was, was part of the appeal? Yeah, for sure. I think that you know, it, it takes a certain type of person, I suppose, to see what could be perceived as comedy in rock or popular music and, uh, you know, not be a little turned off by it. But it, it's those clever lyrics that really make They Might Be Giants so special. I'd sort of like to share something about um, a POV that I have that now I went to I, in my band scene when I grew up in Toronto, Canada in the 90s or 80s and 90s. Um, there was a band called Bare Naked Ladies, and you've heard of Bare Naked Ladies. And they were on our scene, and they were the clever kids who were really peppy and really, like, they went for it. And, of course, that is 
to some people, that's too much and that's that's comedy. But when you get to know these guys and you see they're, what they're writing about, and particularly the songs of Stephen Page, um, he can be funny and, and and he can also be sardonic. And when I got to know those guys, you know, I realized that some people don't understand the jokes. Then I had a conversation because I did write a book about them. They asked me to write their sort of authorized biography. It's one of the first things I ever wrote. And that was called uh, Public Stunts, Private Stories. Don't go looking for it. Uh, but it was many years ago. And But I, one of the joys of my life was I got to sit in cello studios in Los Angeles while they were making the follow-up to their... Um, to their big album that had one week on it, and they were uh, they were recording uh, an album that was uh, I forget the name of it. Anyway, uh, they were recording the follow up with Don Was. Okay, and Don Was was in Was Not Was. Do you know that band? Uh, yes. Uh, okay, Don, Was Not Was had the same kind of reputation of being like Do the Dinosaur and Somewhere in America There's a Street Named After My Dad and Womp That Sucker. kind of a funny band, but they were a serious band. And Don Was sat me down. I was trying to ask him about, you know, what is the BNL thing? And he said, people will always uh, want their rock stars to be serious. And they they want to think that Keith Richards lives the life. And they love, they go to see, because he had played with the Stones. And he, they love the idea that Keith is up there keeping rock and roll alive while you're paying your mortgage or you have kids and all that. And when they when they get comedy bands, they think that the band isn't taking it seriously. And the, and so there's this moment where they, at least it always used to be the way. And, you know, maybe Zappa went through this too, that whenever there's a sardonic or comedic or even a, a silly aspect to a band, immediately they have a, a they get that rock, uh, sort of the rock orthodoxy is like, you cannot do this. And so I think that he, in explaining the Bare Ladies appeal, he also invariably sets up what we're talking about with They Might Be Giants. So, I mean, just it's just a food for thought. I th- thought I'd throw that in because, you know, he was, Don Was knows a few things. So I thought that was really cool when he said that. Everyone here has seen the Sparks documentary, right? Oh, We've God, seen... yeah. Love those guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, love those guys. Love that doc. Um, yeah, yeah. John Ulyss and I were talking about how many things, like after that doc, we had a little chat and it was like so many of the things that these people were kind of breathlessly enthusing about with Sparks, you could say about They Might Be Giants. It was just like, let's let's all just accept that this is a great band, you know? And it, it, it is rare to see They Might Be Giants discussed as a great band without the trappings of uh, even what we're doing right now, this kind of like, uh, you know, explaining their appeal yeah, or, yeah. Or, or sort of like sp- trying to encapsulate it. Um, but um, I think we can maybe all say that we all get it, right? At least to some degree. <laughs> yeah. There are moments when I've dipped out or just saw that they had a new album out and was less uh, just preoccupied. I, I am guilty of that. But um, I go all the way back to, you know, hearing like one of the, fr- I guess it was the self-titled first album and just like, I had it actually on CD and I I was just like obsessed with it, like obsessed with the shortness of the songs uh, as a home recording person. Uh, I just was obsessed with the fact that they were concise and that, and again, much like we're talking about humor and seriousness, there's this thing about being able to play your instrument, but not having to show off all the time, but when they needed to, <laughs> you know, especially certainly when they, when they expanded the band into 
some some of the big rock virtuosos that are in their band. Uh, but even the fact that they, they they clearly knew their way around musicality and and chord structure and melody and 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 but it was all in the service of very short things, you know, and and just you know just kind of kind of how could you not be impressed with the you know they pack so much in there spring loaded you open the box and everything jumps right out you know They were kind of an MTV band, which is hard to square now, but they MTV embraced them very early on because they were so like fast and visually appealing and funny and their videos were really uh, unique. Um, but I remember like, yeah, it just instantly felt like, oh, I found this. You know, this wasn't something that had been handed down to me. This wasn't from my dad's record collection. And yet it was very tuneful and as obscure as it might be, it was it always is hooky. Well, something you pointed out as you're saying that about uh, sort of the video band is um, I grew up in Canada. We had Much Music, which Much Music played like MTV, but it had different things. And they also had like local Canadian bands because of the way the the law works. They have to play some Canadian content, but they would play much more alternative alternative as part of their regular playlist. And whereas I hear that in the States, you would have like 120 minutes uh, and I remember visiting once, and this is, I'm getting to a point, which is, I'm going to throw out the name OK Go, because OK Go were a band that managed to do something that They Might Be Giants maybe didn't do or didn't need to do. Um, when I first saw Get Over It, their first video that I saw was on 120 Minutes, and I happened to be visiting the States, and the ping pong table section in the middle where the band drops out and the music drops out and they're just playing ping pong for a couple of beats, um, to me, that was as interesting as any, uh, was it Adam Bernstein who did the uh, They Might Be Giants videos? Yeah. Yeah. And like, it felt like, and of course, later, OK Go proved to be very much the high concept video people and that to their albatross, perhaps, they are now known primarily as a, a complicated video act, uh, even though they're a great live band. Yeah, they could make a great record and people would say like, so what are you going to do for this one? <laughs> you know, I'm not like a super OK Go fan, but I really love everything I ever hear of them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't follow them much and, you know. I kind of feel exactly the same way. Like, I think their, their, their songs tend to sound really good to me and the guy's voice sounds great, but I have, for whatever reason, never like become an album fan yeah. of theirs. And again, not, not to cast aspersions. One of their earliest audiences was They Might Be Giants fans because they were opening for TMBG some 15, 20 years ago. And, and they uh, share the same management company still. Oh, well, then it's all very clear now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Damien is like the third John in that way, you know, like uh, you know, the guy from the band. But um, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to raise that point, which is this thing about whether or not they're accessible or not, timing is everything. And uh, They Might Be Giants were there before anyone else was there. And the Dial-A-Song thing even is still not matched. You know, like the idea of truly having a Dial-A-Song uh, not just some, you know, they would make stuff for that thing every 
I don't know, every day, every week. I don't know. But I, I felt like I would call from work because it was free. Mm-hmm. You know, have you ever crossed paths with the Johns or or uh, been in that orbit? Yeah, I have. I, I have. In fact, well, this is an awkward way in. Uh, my first experience with the Johns uh, wasn't particularly, you know, I had a lot of expectations as a fan. I had uh, it was around the time of flood. And I guess they were starting to do a lot of, you know, a lot of big shows. And and I was in Toronto and I went up to them and I. I have to like the full mea culpa. I come from a background where my brother, Mike, was a comedian who later went to Saturday Night Live. And, uh, you know, back when he was at Second City, I was like, we all took Second City workshops to learn how to do improv comedy. I realized I wanted to be a musician more than a comedian, and maybe I was better at it. And he was a music fan, but also really gifted as a comedian. So we had this, and my other brother, Peter, we have this this thing about music and comedy, you know, Python is as big in our house as it is, as the Beatles were, you know, and, um, and Led Zeppelin, you know, we we kind of, and then we all discovered new wave and punk together at the same time as it was happening. So we had this, all those elements were in place, uh, appreciation of, of the idea of a comedy rock group or a rock group that had a sense of humor or even a comedian comedian troupe that was as influential as a rock group. My point is they're very similar. Zeppelin and Python and the Beatles might as well be the same thing in some ways. Mm-hmm. That is background enough to say that as They Might Be Giants were starting to become part of my listening vocabulary, um, my brother Mike, who was at SNL, had told me that, you know, he saw them at the, let's say it was the Gramercy Theater or something in New York, because he was there. And I saw them the next night at uh, this place in Toronto called the Phoenix Theater. Uh, and I went up to them at the side of the stage and I I guess I was bragging. I don't know. I said, I said, hey, my brother Mike, who's on SNL, really, really liked the show you did the other night. And, you know, dumb thing to say, by the way. But uh, John, uh, uh, John Flansburg just shot me the worst look like he said well why can't he get us on the show then and that was the only thing he said to me and i i was so mad at him then i was mad at myself and in hindsight i don't hold any animosity about any of this but i i also learned you don't don't lead with who your brother is uh it's never an attractive quality (laughs) i mean i feel like in a certain context though you might think they might be fans, or they might that might they they might be happy to know. I thought someone... it would make them happy. Actually, I right. thought it would make them happy to know I have insider information that somebody famous digs you. Right. You know, and who knows? They may they may have appealed to him. Maybe you know he must have had a bad night. I mean, that's what I think. I, I have embarrassing thoughts about all the times I handed someone my demo. So I think you came out <laughs> all right. So then the next time I saw the Johns in person was. Um, uh, well, actually, I had a radio show in Vancouver for a few years. I lived in Vancouver between 2001 and 2006. And uh, 2003, I had a radio show for about a year. And I made it a point of just inviting people I want to be on by the phone. By phone, You know, sometimes you could do that. In, in the days before all these Zoom podcasts, that was, uh, you know, like, hey, why don't we just phone people, you know, set it up through their publicist. And so I had Linnell on the show and they were coming to town. And so I, I uh, arranged to do, and Linnell did a great interview, and he was just amazing. And uh, and we talked about, uh, you know, uh, I think he had already done state songs by this point, and it was like just really fun to talk about West Virginia and stuff like that. And uh, and then uh, I never met him in person until years later. I wrote this book about uh, Long John Baldry, who's a blues guy, and I was in Vancouver visiting Vancouver because I wasn't living there anymore. And I'm staying at one of those hotels that they put people in when they're touring. And 
Linnell gets on the elevator in front of me. I didn't see his face. And then he turns around because they were in town. I didn't know it at the Commodore Ballroom that night. And he has he has a coffee, uh, Starbucks or something. And he and he and I say, hey, you're John Linnell. Like it's the weirdest thing, right? To be on an elevator. And he must have maybe he thought I followed him in. But I honestly didn't know. And I said, hey, we talked on the radio a few years ago on the phone. He goes, oh, okay, you know, and he's like warming to it. And and I said, um, I said, oh, man, I'm in, I'm in town doing this book launch that's tonight. I, and I, I guess I'll miss your show. I didn't even know you guys were here. And he goes, well, we'll put you on the door if you finish early. And it was like super nice. And I so I gave him a copy of this blues book that I'd written, which I have no idea. It may have stayed in the hotel. Um, um, but, um, you know, and I didn't I don't think I talked to them after the show, but it was like such a treat to be uh, uh, just happen to be randomly bump into Linnell and have him put me on the guest list for this great They Might Be Giants show. So that was the next time I saw. And then I think I saw them at Richards on Richards, which is the night that they performed that song for the first time. So. That's killer. Now, see, I think they actually have a special trash bag for when someone hands you their demo. <laughs> I don't know what they do when someone hands you their blues book. That might be special enough to like at least make it onto the bus or hey, something. Hey, if you like talk that. to Linnell, ask him. Maybe yeah. he still got it. You know, maybe it turned out to be his favorite book, and he can't remember who gave it to him. You know, I don't know. That's definitely one of the nicer. I bumped into John Linnell outside the show <laughs> stories that <laughs> yeah. I heard. Yeah. <laughs> it's about as good as it could have gone. Well, I got to say, I had another Flansburg moment at the Richards on Richards show. I I had a cat. And I heard that he had cats. And we were talking about scooping cat litter with a bunch of people. I don't know how we got into this after the show. And I said, I said, you know, I I find myself like, you know, taking the clubs out and then blah, blah, blah. And he said, why don't you just change the, the damn litter every time? And I went, oh, because I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, and I was just kind of humiliated. And uh, so that's two for Flansburg. So just so you know. So yeah, Flansburg, if you're listening. It's that post-show vibe. Within, yeah, I should you know? never, Maybe. ever. That's one thing I learned. Never hit Flansburg after a show. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably good advice to anyone listening as well. So that's that's very, very solid information. So you have a closet full of litter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. I don't know what he does with the cat litter, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll find out someday in a, in a song. Anyway, so having said that, I think they're, they're, they're wonderful guys. Going back to the flood uh, thing... Um, uh, I was so excited when I first heard your racist friend. This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics bore you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist friend. It was such a happy-go-lucky song about a situation... Like, and it's a situation, it's very relevant to today, which which is, especially, okay, so I'm a white male, if you're not listening, if you're listening, you can't see me. I'm a white male, and I, guys who look like me can quite often be dicks, and let's face it. And, uh, and so Your Racist Friend is a story about a guy standing up in a social scene to say, you know what, it's not okay. And that thing about being an ally and 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 representing and being there for against being anti-racist, actively anti-racist in a term, but time we never used that term back in the old days, but that is the term. And so what was great about that song was, you know, you know, he's saying, this is where the party ends. I can't hang out with you people. And it's just this happy-go-lucky tune. Like, you know, like, I know politics bore you. I know, blah, blah, blah. And he's even saying, like, you're going to say, oh, don't get political. But like, the truth is, I can't stand here talking to you and your racist friend. 
you know, and we were having a good time until this guy came, you know? Some bullet head. I always love that bullet head. That's a perfect choice of words. Absolutely. I mean, it could be a skinhead. It could be just that he's a gun nut, you know? Uh, but um, so, so what I liked about that song was that it was a way of, you know, high in the, the set list too, like in the, in the album. It's a way of saying, you know, we're going to have a good time. We're going to party. But you know what? Um, racists can just get the hell out of here. And 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 that's pretty heavy for them to say. And it's a good thing. Like, the, it's an ally statement. And it, it shows that, you know, this is a party where you're not going to get away with that. And I, I mean, there you go. That's, that's and it, over to you now. But that's kind of why I put it on the list, because it's damn serious about a damn serious thing. And it feels timely now. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It's over 30 years old and obviously as applicable now as ever. I think the the real standout line for me, can't shake the devil's hand and say you're only kidding, is probably one of the most like applicable lines in the whole They Might Be Giants catalog. And, uh, and people quote it all the time in and out of context, just mm -hmm. because, of, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, yeah. Did it, they coin that? That's like, that feels like a proverb or something. No, it does like feel that, like it's know? been around a long time. I, I, good question. There, there's often the case where they're referring to things and changing words here and there, like in, you know, um, I should be allowed to think. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical. I should be allowed to glue my poster. I should be allowed to think. It's like, uh, what do you call it in literature when you have footnotes, you know, if you, if you can, or in hyperlinks, you know, you could sort of see where, you know, there's that, that genius, lyric genius site that sort of explains the context of lyrics. And yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, they reward the listener if you, uh, if you already know something or if you can go find out something. And even years later, you'll discover something. So you say you didn't know how by Allen Ginsberg and you, you only knew the line about, uh, I saw the greatest minds of my generation, you know, and you don't know that Ginsburg years later it'll come to you and you'll be like oh my god they were they weren't just making that up you know yeah so that's cool how for Carl Solomon I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness starving hysterical naked Dragging well, the funny thing is, and I think, John, Ulyss, since you're an admin on, a, on the uh, Facebook group, uh, you, you might see this much more than I do, but there's a thing where people get their timeline confused and thinks things are references to They Might Be Giants. People will be like, I heard this on this show the other day, and it's got to be a reference to They Might Be Giants. And it's like, well, yes, maybe, but it also could be a reference to the 100-year-old thing they were referring to, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's like that kind of cultural, uh, yeah, that reach. They're just pulling from what they think is kind of a shared lexicon. And I think sometimes they know they're going outside the shared lexicon a little bit, like referring to Longines Sinfonette in, in Birdhouse and yeah, Your Soul. Yeah, yeah. That's like a big pop song with a very obscure reference in it. But I bet at least to people of their age group or their cohort, they thought that was a reference that would resonate and not like a send you scurrying to look something up moment. But they're kind of a look something up band. My story's infinite, like the London symphonite. It doesn't rest. Look at Harry in the alley by the light switch. Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul. Not to put too fine a point on it. Say I'm the only beaver body. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. So, Paul, what's the next song that you picked? Well, I kind of earlier kind of tipped the, my hand about They'll Need a Crane. I think I said everything I wanted to say about it, more or less, which is, you know, it's it's a song about deconstructing a relationship that just sounds like, it just sounds like it's, a, a, you know, and all that sort of jokey sort of like, 
some gal gal and lad and all that stuff and but then in the middle of it there's this whole like mini movie No, the boss still hates me and I'm just tired and I don't love you anymore. That is like like this little bomb in the like and I don't love you anymore. Like what? <laughs> and then and then he, he talks about this nightmare uh this restaurant where the nightmare people go and he like as if he's can keep going after saying that. And then and then she's going away. I mean I'm telling everyone what they already know, but she's going away and he's like, Oh, I didn't mean to say nightmare. Like, no, you just said I don't love you anymore. Like, and like that idea that we can casually, this is like so complex for a popular song. And, you know, and then just like, we'll need a crane, you know, like mm-hmm. they're just dancing around. And it's actually quite. It's quite the heavy song. It's as, it's heavier than almost anything Morrissey ever wrote. You know, it's like it's the darkest Smiths timeline. I mean, it's like, but you'd never know it, and that's kind of what I love about them. My friend Brooke was pointing out last week the uh, lad looks at other gals. Gal thinks Jim Beam is handsomer than Lad. It's not <laughs> talking about another guy named Jim Beam. It's talking about a bottle of alcohol looks more appealing than the male in this story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, it's funny because that also the idea that you know there's a lot of alcoholism and drinking down of emotions, and like in narrow your eyes, uh, there's a there's a line about that we'll get to later. It's on my list. I, I just wanted to say it made me. Th- it always has made me think of another song too. Uh, do you know uh, Freddie Johnston's song "Tearing Down This Place"? Have you ever heard that song? Oh, you know what? It's not coming to mind right away. Is that from the first Freddie Johnson album? It's from Can You Fly, the second one. The one that that kind of put him on the map. Yeah, the the first one that I heard. Like, seek out that song because it's about tearing down a house, maybe a literal kind of tearing down a house, but it's got like, it's, it's a killer. Knock it down, take it away. We've got work tearing down this place. Take it away, take it away. Take it away. Here's the room where they lay awake through a complicated night. He was staring at the wall and she cried and cried and cried. I mean, they're both super heartbreaking songs. Um, the thing is, Freddie Johnston was on Bar None, which was the label that They Might Be Giants started out on, and Can You Fly came out a few years after Lincoln. So I did always wonder if Tearing Down This Place was in any way inspired by uh, They'll Need a Crane. That's an interesting idea. And a few years after Burning Down the House. Yeah, right. <laughs> Elvis Costello has a song like that, too. Sometimes we'd fight in public, darling, with very little cause. Kinds of sparks would fly when we 
I'm I'm an amateur Elvis Costello scholar, but I do know a lot of I know a lot of his songs, but I don't always know exactly what he's saying. Um, sometimes he's just clever for clever's sake. Let's be honest. Um, but I mean, I love him. Don't get me wrong. Right, Elvis, if you're listening. No, a lot of uh, his brilliant <laughs> volumes of lyrics boil down to "you fucked up" or "hey, I fucked yeah. up." <laughs> Accusatory song. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, maybe it's indoor fireworks actually from the. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, because he's talking about you know. Yeah, indoor fireworks can still burn your fingers. Using the house as a as a as a as a containment unit for the whole relationship. Uh, Michael Penn has a great song called "The Battle Room" oh, God, from yes. one of his records, you know, and just that idea that there's such a thing as get into the battle room. It's like one of those songs that just, I wish I'd written it myself, you know? I mean, yeah, you could, I don't want to get started on a Michael Penn tangent, because I could go on forever. We'll do that on the Michael Penn podcast later. Yes, right. We got to do an appreciation of him at some point. But he's one of those, I really do think he's truly underrated. He's one of, you know, like an impeccable uh, career, just song to song, everything he's put out. I just like to give him a compliment without saying underrated so that he he gets to hear that once in his life. Oh, shit. You're right. You're right. You know, you're right. (laughs) No, it's just, it's like my friend Ron Sexsmith. He said, you know, I'm always getting these articles written about me about how I, how nobody knows me. Like, (laughs) like... And it's like, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, good point. Anyway, okay, back to They Might Be Giants. It's a little bit like starting a conversation about They Might Be Giants, defending them, you know? Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. uh, But but I've always, I had this theory about the kinks. If everybody agrees you're underrated, does that mean you're accurately rated? And I I don't know the answer to that. But maybe Michael Penn is, he's almost, he's on the cusp of being accurately rated. If everybody that ever mentions him agrees that he's underrated, you know, then then maybe we should just stop saying it. We'll take back everything we say. I don't know if they've ever confirmed this, but to me, when I hear narrow your eyes as a phrase, I always think of people who are wide-eyed and in love. You know, take that wide eye and make it narrow because, you know, let's get pragmatic here. You know, how pragmatic. Our love's never coming back and we'll race to the bottom of a glass, you know, which is like, uh, I mean, that's a, it is, that is also, by the way, a classic line about, you know, 
getting to the bottom of a glass. I believe Bernie Taupin used it in uh, in uh, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. Um, but the idea of you know getting to the bottom of a glass because you know it yeah it's perfect. It's as a as a recovering alcoholic, I can totally relate to the idea of chasing down the rest of this drink to see if it gets me somewhere. You know, but mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that's a great song. I mean, like that's another song of theirs that uh, you know almost feels like it should have been a hit. Or I mean, I know that's a weird thing to say, but they have a lot of songs that I think, oh, why wasn't this a single? But that one actually yeah. feels like, uh, I mean, at a time when they were releasing songs like the guitar and the statue got me high from that album, I always thought "Narrow Your Eyes" felt almost like it. It sounds like it should be the single. You know, like it sounds like it's designed to be the single. Almost. A little more accessible. Mm-hmm. And we've and it, and it comes up a lot. I feel like it's sort of a sleeper. Uh, favorite or a sleeper classic uh, for, for the band. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I mean, and it's again, it's that thing where the more straightforward the the song musically and hooky, the more subversive it gets to be. You know, right? It's like the the sugar coating to a, a a bitter pill, which is kind of what we're talking about in general here. Well, let's move on to uh, another of your picks. I just want to say that Destination Moon is one of those songs that I, um, I always, I think I brought more to it than's actually there. When I looked at the lyrics, I realized that I, I must have read something about what it's about because it's really, you know, there's only a few clues that it's, it's basically a terminally ill person dreaming about getting the hell out of there, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's what I think. But you know, you know, the don't call, bother to call this room, you know, that idea, you know, and the nurse. There's a nurse here, uh, and then he's just talking about, you know, just throwing back the blanket. Was it hanging down the withered legs? I'm looking it yes. up right now. Yeah, and and just basically, and soon the man who sweeps the room brings the secret telegram, which, I mean, to me, that's like the Grim Reaper. I mean, uh, and yet the song is just like exciting, you know, and, you know, by, you know, by rocket to the moon, by airplane to the rocket, you know, like it's, it it's... I, I think I must have somewhere read something where, uh, you know, did they ever, you guys know maybe more than me, did they ever talk about this song? Because I feel like I got this idea about it being also a terminally ill child for some reason, which is like completely heartbreaking. But um, I'm not I'm not sure I've heard the, the child angle, but there was a, uh, a CMJ, I think in 1994, yeah. where Linnell said, let's see, he said it was about being really, really sick when you think that you're not. Yes. I think we're pretty much on track there. Yeah. I mean, just that, that idea that you could, yeah, that, you know, uh, it's, it's both literally the idea of thinking about your spirit leaving your body and going to the heavens, you know, uh, but at the same time, there's also this, just this pure escapism or pure denial, you know, denial, I think is the word. Thank you for the card with the Cry. 
rocket to the moon crawl to the rocket by yes. coughing at the airport, by limping <laughs> to the taxi, by throwing back the blanket, hanging down the withered leg. So they're acknowledging like th- that they're not doing so great, but they, they, they are putting a sunny side on it. And it does remind me of that. If you've ever had an older relative that you visit in the hospital, the, the, they may pull you to like the nurses are coming and going and everybody's, you know, preparing this person maybe for the descent or, you know, being realistic about what's happening. And they may say something to you like, you got to get me out of here. You know, like in mm-hmm. their minds, they're still scheming. And like, why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be sitting there if you're, you know, you're like, well, I've gotten out of every scrape up until now. <laughs> what's to say I won't get out of this one? <laughs> exactly. There's almost something inspirational and kind of upbeat about someone showing that moxie in that in that dire moment. There's a line in, the, in a, an XTC song called dying uh where they're much more straightforward and uh but he says that time we played you up when you were ill so ill and i felt so guilty when we played you up when you were ill so ill what sticks in my mind is a sweet jar on the sideboard and your multicolored tea In my mind is the dewdrop hanging off your nose, shriveled up and blue. And I'm getting older too. But I don't want to die like you. Don't want to die like you. One of my earliest memories of all my sort of English relatives, because my parents are from England, and I saw some very old geriatric uh, uncles and aunties and stuff, and my grandparents, and they were all very close to the end of their lives. And my mother would say, going in, you know, tell them they're going to get better. <laughs> and and I, I laugh because it's like such a, it's, you're basically saying to your kid, lie to them, but you're lying to them to make them feel better. I get it. You know, that's cool. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not, I don't fault anyone who does that, but... Um, just on a very, very serious level, like uh, a few years ago, my my uh, my father-in-law, my mother, my wife's uh, father, he was dying, and they knew it, and it was the and the whole family was there at the bed. This is you know about five years ago, and uh, and I it was so touching to see um, my mother-in-law saying, "This is it, you know, you've done well, good for you, you know," and. I'd never seen anyone be so honest with someone because I guess he really wasn't coming back. But like, I, and he seemed at peace, but I mean, it was definitely like, oh, we get to say this now? Like, not we get to, but you know what I mean? No, I know what you're saying. To notice, to notice that moment, I hope I'm not uh, disturbing my, my relatives by saying this, but to notice that moment felt, the honesty of it actually felt incredibly moving and I was honored to be there. So, you know, I'm not joking about this, but, but the idea of being super honest at that moment just was so jarring, which is, brings us back to this song. I mean, Destination Moon is about somebody who's in denial, I think. I think. The next song you chose is Older, and I love this pick because this is a song that's almost like an experiment. It actually comments on how you're aging while you're listening to it. It is it is completely about your mortality. It rubs your face in your mortality. That one, the humor comes from, I'm assuming it's Flansburg who cuts in with the very operatic, you know. Time is marching on. Yeah, that is, it's actually quite nostalgic because it reminds me of some of their earliest camp theatricality. Yes. 
You're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're even older, and now you're even older. You're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're older still. Time is marching on, and time is still marching on. It wakes up the song because the song could be kind of a very, like, you know, a very tight sort of Bach kind of little, you know, it just sort of feels like almost classical music. And and then all of a sudden this, like, I picture him in a toga almost saying, time, you know, like, and the Caesar approaches, you know, it just feels a little like that. Well, if you know something about their early days as a duo and their performances, that song feels very sort of intact with that duo spirit. Like the arrangement is pretty stripped down when they perform it live. It could just be the two of them because of the drama, maybe of those vocal performances, you know? Yeah. Um, I do think that's right. It makes good use of both of their sort of vocal register and what they do. Yeah. So when will you die? It's it's almost like there's a joke. That I, a lot of times I call them like the Uber joke. Like the ult, the ultimate joke of the song is that the song exists. I'm so tired of your lies and the evil things you're doing behind my back are the crimes that you have never committed. I doubt it sometimes. I wonder when will you die? You're insane. You are bad. You wreck everything you touch. And you're a first time I heard it, my jaw dropped. It's basically a book of lists of every vitriolic thing you could say to somebody or every harsh judgment you could have of somebody. And, you know, I mean, immediately when I think of it, I, I picture people like Donald Trump in my head and like thinking, you know, where, why are you still here? Uh, are there crimes that you've never committed? I doubt it. They don't just glance off the idea that they're wondering when this person will die. They start picturing whole celebrations <laughs> after it. So that's already funny enough. You know, school children will stay at home, all the banks will close and we'll mark the day and we'll celebrate. But then after all of this, it ends up being kind of a let's introduce the band song. Yeah. This is Dan and that's Dan. There's Dan and Marty, and, and there's, I'm John, and he's John. But then it goes right back to, and what we all like to know is, yeah. when will you die? <laughs> and, and um, like if you know, I mean, they've got to be having a good laugh when they wrote that, because that is just like, it, it, it manages to be both a song about the performance of being in a band, but also, yeah. like, isn't it hilarious that you, instead of saying, hey, everybody, how are you all doing? It's like, when will you die? You know, they're even kind of signing it and yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The, they might be giants is curious. When will you die? You know, it's it's a, it adds to the joke for sure. They've spoken about this song a few times, and I think they've said both that the song is about someone specific and that it's not, and really it's just part of what I think you called the Uber joke, which is that by saying it is about someone, they're just adding and adding and compounding to, you know, the the drama of the entire thing. Uh, I, I want to throw a few Beatle things at this, which is John Lennon, uh, John Lennon uh, comes to mind a little bit because, uh, it, he, of course, he wrote How Do You Sleep for Paul McCartney about Paul McCartney, I mean.
saying, you know, uh, those freaks was right when they said you was dead. And then, and then he says, you know, since you've gone, it's just another day. So everyone, in case you were wondering, the sound you made was yesterday, you know, and, 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 and he's basically, you know, telling the, everything but saying, this song's about Paul McCartney. <laughs> but John Lennon particularly had a habit of naming names like in, in, um, in uh, I think it's God, where he says, uh, you know, the dream is over. I was the walrus, but now I'm John. You know, no one else could cover that song apparently. So, right. so, so in this one where they named the band, it's like you know. Also, it was nice that they at this point they were such a band band that after being a duo for the early part of their career, you know, you say this is Dan and that's Dan. There's Marty on the drums to complete the band. Um, it was a little bit of a making it official kind of like you know, uh, even if it was already official. To, to even just to see the song title, "When Will You Die?" I mean, it's everything we've been talking about, which is this this incredible party band with this incredible concept of mortality and realism. Great list. I don't know, John, if you have anything you want to add to this before we wrap it up. They're excellent picks, and I, I think it goes to show, because you pick songs all the way from uh, the beginning of the band's career till now, that uh, you know they are singular in their mission statement, and uh, both John's also, you know, they'll need a crane, very strong Linnell track, and then Narrow Your Eyes, very strong Flansburg track, both about, you know, the the funny but sad parts of a relationship ending. Well, uh, this was so fun, Paul. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed your time. Yeah, I mean, I could I could nerd out about this stuff all day. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Johns. Now is our guest the legendary Paul Myers. Yeah, well, legendary, though. I mean, I agree, but Paul Myers has to be the most mild-mannered man to be so legendary. Um, don't forget to check out the Record Store Day podcast, which comes back on June 8th with new episodes. Now that you've been hypnotized into loving Paul's voice and demeanor, that's where you get it. As for this show, reach us at 9secreteps at gmail.com. That's 9, the number, secreteps at gmail. I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. What about you, John? I'm on both those socials as well at moving to T-O, the sun. And as for, uh, geez, <laughs> I never know what the hell to say at the end of these things. God. Uh, it almost seems like it should be like advice or something. <laughs> hey, kids, stay in school. Eat your vegetables. Let's just end this. Let's end it all. Until next time. Keep on rocking. <laughs> <laughs>